Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. We hope that it will encourage you as you seek to follow God and grow in your faith. If you would like to know more about our church, you can check us out at www.ritmangrace.org or feel free to email us at ritmangbc at aol.com. But for right now, let's get into today's message. Today we're going to start thinking about um, the Gospel of John. We're going to run through the Gospel of John for a bunch of weeks here and look at some of the miracles uh, that John calls signs. We'll talk about that in a moment, but I wanted to do that because a series I think that fits my time frame, but also we've been all summer uh, in the book of Kings and Chronicles and we've been really uh, hitting some heavy Old Testament stuff, and I thought, this is good stuff. We wanted to just be light and let you uh, have a chance to think about some very important events in the life of Christ and what they symbolize. So we're going to look at that. And some questions that I wanted to ask you, you don't need to answer out loud, but um, they're also, I think, in your bulletin. Question is, are there miracles today? Uh, I'm going to suggest yes. Um, but I'm also going to tell you that there might be helpful to all of us if maybe I gave a little bit of a definition as to what I mean when I'm talking about miracles. So I'm going to put this up here. Um, it says a miracle is an event or a happening that can only be explained as an act of God. There's no logical human explanation for it. Now. Um, confessing, that's my definition. So I don't know if anybody else has that one or not, but um, I think a lot of theologians would agree with that. That technically a miracle is something that uh, there's no way to explain it except for the fact that God had to have done this. That's it. That's the only way that it can be understood. When someone tells you something that was miraculous and was done, your only response is, that's not possible. That can't happen. Well, it did. And, um, and I'm going to suggest that yes, there are some of those. So then my next question is going to be, and don't answer it out loud, answer it in your mind, but have you seen miracles? Have you in your life seen some? I'm going to suggest yes. People in our church who've been here for a while um, remember when Andy Janis decided to take a trip off the side of the Grand Canyon and fall 200 feet and land on his head and, um, and was severely injured, uh, so much so that Mike Brenovich, who was on staff with us at that time and had the youth ballot conference, was one of the first ones to come upon him and administered CPR to him and didn't even know it was him. Uh, David would have been there at that time. He and uh, Andy were there on Operation Barnabas. Uh, you know, there are ways to explain away events like that because there's thought that there might have been a cable hanging that he might have hung up on and fell off of that. So it wasn't quite the 200 feet, whatever. He hit his head on the ground when <laughs> he fell. Um, no one expected him to get through that at all. No one expected him to live. And um, 
we did a, a thing where we where people in the community, some of our Christian friends in the community, contributed to a fund, and we raised a lot of money to help with Andy's expenses because we believed that he was going to be transported back by a medical airplane that was costing tens of thousands of dollars to do, and he didn't need it. A few weeks later, about a month later, he flew back with his mom and uh, coach. <laughs> Probably didn't even get pretzels and, and didn't cost much. And, and, and it was, there, there's no way to explain it other than God. It really is. Um, have you yourself experienced anything like that? And maybe you have. Um, in our society, we're kind of a little bit flippant with things like miracles. And I don't mean to be disrespectful with this, but every time a, a child is born, someone will say, oh, that's a miracle. Well, it is. I mean, the whole process of, of that is a miracle. It's all initiated and designed by God. But it is, in another sense, a normal human process that happens uh, billions of times. So it's not necessarily, in my definition, technically a miracle. But we do see things and experience things like that often. Miracles, I would suggest, are pretty rare. They don't happen all the time. In the scriptures, there's a lot of miracles recorded. And so we'll, we'll look at that and say, wow, there's just hundreds of miracles that happen all the time. Well, there's lots of them. But when you look at the time frame of when they're recorded, you have a, a bunch that are cluttered around certain times in, in the Old Testament. Then you don't have any for a long time, hundreds of years. And then you have a bunch, a real bunch, around the life of Jesus and the early startup of the church. There's a whole bunch of miracles at that time. All of those have purposes behind them. God is not indiscriminate with miracles. He doesn't just flippantly throw them out there. Uh, there's reasons why those happen. And John's going to tell us some of those, some of those reasons. In fact, in John chapter 20, um, at the end of that chapter, verse 30, it says this, Jesus did many other miraculous signs. Now remember, this is John chapter 20, the next to last chapter in the Gospel of John. So he's already written 19 other chapters, some of which has some pretty amazing events happen that he's used in his purpose for getting to that. But he's now saying, so I wrote all these things up for this purpose. And, and he did these, Jesus did these in the presence of his disciples. And these are not recorded in the books. There's many others. So I'm going to suggest to you there's about, uh, it, it varies, but in John's Gospel, there's probably seven or eight miracles that are recorded. And most of them, many of those, are not duplicated in the other Gospels. My own personal theory is John wrote his Gospel a little bit later than the others. I think some of the believers were saying, hey, you know, I've heard about this, you know, word of mouth, we've heard this story, we seen this, um, people talked about it, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke haven't said much about it. Where, where did this come from? What is it? And John, I think, is filling in the gaps. That's my own personal theory. Um, and so he writes about things that the others don't. 
And uh, for whatever reason, whether I'm right or wrong, but there's a reason. So he gives us some, and he says there's a whole lot more that are not recorded in this book. Um, there are some religious groups that have um, somehow, one means or another, have come up with all kinds of stories of what Jesus did. Some of them go back to his childhood and tell stories. For instance, the one about how Jesus was playing when he was young, a child, and was playing tag with a bunch of friends, and, and he got knocked down in the game of tag, so he got up and tagged the guy, and another kid struck him dead. Um, that's one that was popularized, and I think the purpose somebody came up with that story was to just show the power of God and Jesus, but it's not true. Uh, it didn't happen. In fact, it, it couldn't have happened. Otherwise, John is wrong in chapter 2 where we're going to be when he says this is the first of his public miracles. So those things didn't happen. So just to relieve your mind. So anyhow, here's a whole bunch of them that John's given to us. But he also tells us here's the purpose. These are written so that you may believe. John's writing this because he wants you to believe. And what's he want you to believe? He wants you to believe that Jesus is the Christ. The word Christ, anointed one, means the Messiah. That's how they always thought of it. John wants you to know and understand and believe that Jesus is really who he claims he is. Jesus is the Messiah. And John said, I just wrote 21 chapters to help you understand that and believe it, that he is the Son of God. And then by believing in that, you may have life in his name. Earlier, John mentions um, the idea of life, and he said, um, Christ has come to give us abundant life. And elsewhere, he tells us that he gives us everlasting life. So all of this that John is writing is for the purpose of you and I being able to absorb that, understand that, believe that, and experience Christ and who he is and live to the fullest that we can possibly live. And when life is over and, and we've had this abundant, full, glorious life, it gets better because then we have eternal life and we're in the presence of God. So his purpose was so that you will believe and specifically he wants you to believe that Jesus is that Messiah, that he is the Son of God. So John's writing in order to prove who Jesus is. He is God. I wish I had written this down. This would have been so good. Someday if I see it again, I'll write it down. But one of my friends on Facebook had a bunch of end-of-life quotes of like Muhammad and Buddha and some of them, all of which uh, said, I don't know the purpose of life. Um, I am not the way. And just a lot of those kind of things. And then it was contrasted with who Jesus is. He is God. And it is critical, essential, vital, I don't have enough words to say, that you must believe that Jesus is Christ, that he is God. 
Because that belief in him and that faith in him and that trust in him is what brings us that life, that abundant life today and the eternal life that we will have forever. And so in proving all this that, Jesus, that John wants to prove, uh, he records some of the most amazing things that Jesus did. And his purpose was just to show that Jesus really is divine. So I'm going to read to you um, the first 11 verses of John chapter 2. This is a story you're really familiar with. The first line of the first thing we sang today referenced it. So here it is. John 2, 1 through 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. By the way, uh, chapter 1 tells you the days setting and all that when... Uh, Mostly about John the Baptist coming forward and some of his events, and then Jesus beginning to call certain disciples to himself. So it's in that process. This is all happening, new disciples. And on that third day, a wedding is taking place, and it's in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. My version translates Jesus' words as saying, New International Version, Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, and the kind you used by the Jews for their ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. And he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom to himself aside and said, Everyone brings the choice wine first, then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you saved the best till now. You saved the best till last. This is the first of his miraculous signs that Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. And he thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Uh, it's pretty interesting. John's going to use a word when he talks about these miracles, and you're going to see this time and time again that John uses that. It's not exclusive to him, but he uses it more than the other writers do. And instead of just saying, oh, this was a miracle, he says it was a sign. He uses the word sign for it. And uh, a sign is special actions that Jesus does, which reveal his glory to those and, uh, who believe in him. And it's there to confront others with the need for them to decide, what do I think about Jesus? So Jesus does this sign. That's somebody, I think, named Bruce Milne that, that did that. I don't know if that'll show up. But I'll, I'll put this up there, too. Um, that is a miracle with a deeper meaning. There's a purpose of what Jesus is doing. He's not just saying, oh, we need wine? Great, let's uh, puff the water's wine. He's not doing that. That's not how he functions. 
there's something here, there's a purpose behind it, there's a symbolism to it. It reveals who he is, it reveals his glory. And it says in that last phrase of verse 11 that the disciples, whom some, most of whom he just called within the last two to three days to come and follow him, they're looking at that and saying, whoa. <laughs> Uh, it was cool that he asked us to follow him. It was kind of neat that he wants to pour into us. He somehow sees something in us, and he wants to disciple us, to train us, to mentor us. But wow, who is this? Oh my goodness, look what he can do. This guy is, there's nobody like this. No one. And there's a purpose on that. And the other thing would be, and I'm sure in that wedding scene, there would have been some who are not, aware of Jesus, who didn't know who he was, or maybe not in a personal way, or, or uh, know of him to any real deep degree, and they're going to be challenged with the, with the idea of, I've got to decide who exactly is this person, and that's what Jesus does today. His miracles, for those of us who know Christ and follow him, should be something that just piles on more and more faith and more and more substantiation of who he is and I'm, I'm with you more and more. I grow every day stronger in that commitment and that conviction. For the person who doesn't know Christ, they're being smacked in the face with it every single time. It's like, who is he? I have to determine who exactly this Jesus is. So because of that and because of those signs and because I drug you through the Old Testament all summer, which is fine, um, now we're going to look in, at what John writes about a lot of these different miracles and uh, some of the things that Jesus did. I, I have down on my list about eight of them that I would like to go through. And that's true. That's what I'm going to try to do. We're going to do it in September and October. It might lead into November a little bit. Because um, some of that's because we, got, we have a missionary coming. Um, probably at least two in the next three months, and maybe even three, so so it'll depend on some of that. But anyhow, we'll let you know in advance what's going on. So here we are, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Jesus is at a wedding, and things happen. Weddings in Israel are a little bit different than how they are here, but there's a lot of things that are similar. Um, they were very, very elaborate very festive. Uh, they enjoyed themselves. The betrothal period, the engagement period in their day was usually about a year long. That's not unusual because I think Dan and I were engaged about a year and so some people do that but it was really different in a sense that it was very binding. When you got engaged or betrothed in their culture, you were, everything was exactly like being married, except for you didn't sleep with each other. And so you would do things together, you would make decisions together, and in the meantime, while you're doing that, she's living in her cluster at home with her family, and you're living with, the guy's living with his family, the group begins to prepare a place for her to come and live with him. Now, in my mind, I, I see this, uh, I want to use the idea of a honeycomb or something, but um, <clears throat> often what would happen is the family would have an area where they live. 
their houses were not gigantic or elaborate. They didn't have three floors or basements or things like that. And when somebody would, like this, a son would grow and now he's gonna start his own family, then often what he would do is he would add another room off of where the rest of the family lived. And eventually you've got a room with a room with a room with a room, and if you go enough generations and enough children, you've got a big cluster, and in the center would be sort of a little courtyard where maybe all the cooking went on and people would come together. And families were together. They were families. They would eat together. They would do that. So here's this guy who's now engaged, and he's going to, for the next year or so, he's working about adding on to his little place. He's making his, and he's preparing to bring her back with him. That's what Jesus was thinking about when in John chapter 14, he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go there, I'm going to come back and bring you back to me with me. You're going to be where I am. So that picture was very vivid to them. It was very much like a groom preparing a place for a bride, and then he would come and get her. When he would come and get his bride, when his grooms would come and get her, he and his party would come, and they would walk all through the area, all through the town or whatever was there, and this was a big deal. This was a really big deal. They would sometimes go at nighttime, and if they did, there would be torches and people be carrying them to light the way, and, uh, and they might have like a, a canopy over top of the groom and maybe the best man kind of person or a couple key people and they made a huge thing and they would not just walk through the town they would take the longest route possible they went up and down every single street oh, i'm so tempted to tell a story about when i was in a wedding in worcester and we afterwards were driving the bride i had the bride and groom in my car and we were driving around it was a saturday early afternoon and i saw a particular funeral home and i thought oh this is going to be funny so i drove through and they were just loading the casket into there and we're all driving through honking our horns and that funeral director was not happy with us but um, you know, we do those types of things. And um, they, they did similar stuff. They went up and down all the streets. They were making a big deal. There were probably music. Maybe they had instruments climbing as they did this. It was a huge deal because it was a once-in-a-lifetime affair. And for a lot of these people, they were not very well-to-do, and they were not the center of attention. And this was the one time that everybody focused on them. Now, all of that sounds a little bit like weddings today, doesn't it? So, I mean, they spend tons of money on it, and, and all the attention is on them. Uh, I have my downside opinions of weddings today, but I won't bother you with that. So, In their particular case, hospitality was extremely important. The hospitality of the wedding was extremely important. Now, the weddings would last, the, the festive festival would last about a week, almost an entire week. It just depends on circumstances. 
And it was so critical, the hospitality that you were legally required to provide all the things for the guests during that time. So imagine this, you could go to a wedding and it's not adequate and you could sue the wedding family. I love that. I could go to a wedding and say to the reception, what? You don't have Philly cheesesteaks? I've got my lawyer on speed dial. I'm sorry. You know, we're gonna eat right at this thing. And so I mean you could do that. It was it was huge. It was a um, it was a social uh, statement if you could not provide for the guests. It was as I said about a week long party and, and sort of a little bit of forerunner to like our honeymoon concept. But it's not exactly what Deuteronomy 24 verse 5 says. That's one of my favorite marriage verses. Forget the first four verses of Deuteronomy 24. Those aren't so good. But verse 5 is pretty cool. Uh, I just wish that we were really a Christian godly nation and would do that. You do too, by the way. Everybody's looking it up real fast. But Deuteronomy 24 5 says that when you get married, when you take a wife, you are not to do anything for a year. You're not allowed to work. You're not allowed to go to war. The families will take care of you. It is a year-long honeymoon. Why not? <laughs> Why not do that? When do you get that time? It's when you're old and retired and, you know, I don't have the energy to drive the Sterling anymore. And so, um, so I, I like Deuteronomy. I like God's point much better, but we don't live in a nation that's set up to do those kind of things. This particular wedding must have been um, someone or someone's who were related or close friends to Mary and therefore also Jesus. Because Mary was asked in some capacity to serve as a hostess or a server or something there, or at least she felt a little bit of responsibility because the unthinkable happens, they run out of the beverage, drink the wine, and she comes to Jesus and says, can you do something about this? Now, I have read some commentaries, and some are really good, some are get off a little bit, and some have suggested that the reason Mary came is because it was Jesus' fault for bringing these new friends of his to this wedding, and so therefore they wiped them out of what they had and supplied, so it's your problem, you fix it. I don't agree with that. Uh, the scripture says that they were invited and welcomed and they would have planned for that. It, it just happened. They, they probably were not real well to do and they just didn't have it all covered. This was supposed to be a fun and raucous occasion and now we've got this serious problem. Let me see what I have over. Serious problem. The issue is not the wine running out. Uh, that is their issue. But to you and I, what the real issue is, is the one who replenishes it. This was a social catastrophe, and she goes to Jesus and asks him to do something. Now, by the way, um, well, we'll talk about that in a moment, about his response to her. But let me just say this. 
if Jesus did not come through and provide for the needs of the moment, this would have been a wedding that took place 2,000 years ago and you and I would have never heard of it. No one would have thought about it again. This is a unique, incredible thing that happened because of Jesus and Him being there. Mary suggests to Jesus, could you come and intervene on this? And I think there's, instead of seeing that as totally a negative thing, I do think there's a, a part of that where she's showing maybe some trust in him. There might be some belief that she knows who he is. You know, the angel told her who, she, who Jesus was going to be. She spent probably 30 years around him. She knows a little bit about him. She shows that she has some confidence, perhaps, in, in his powers and his abilities. And his response to her, which over the years, the, the King James Version, it just sounds like, woman, what do I got to do with you? And, uh, but it's not that way. It's a much more tender, uh, polite term. In fact, I listed in your, in your outline so you could research this later. Other times that Jesus used that exact same uh, greeting to a woman, and it's very polite. I kind of wrote when I was doing my study that it's sort of like when you, when I politely say to some, someone, well, ma'am, uh, here's how it is. And I, I thought of that, but then when I saw that um, the NIV had actually dear woman, and I thought, yeah, that's probably a much better translation of it. So it's a polite term. And he tells her that his hour has not come yet. Uh, the time when he's going to suffer and die and ultimately prove who he is, and none of that's come yet. It seems as though Mary is requesting this, obviously to meet the need, to help this family, to save their face in social events. But maybe there's more to it than that as well. Here Mary is, I'm assuming, if it's family, if it's friends, she's with people who have known her. Um, and it's been a few decades since she's given birth to this miraculous uh, version of deception child. And maybe there's been a lot of suspicion and a lot of little snide comments over the years. And maybe she, you know, she's ready to say, you know, this is the perfect setting. Prove to them once and for all that you are who I've always said you were going to be and let them now know that they were wrong and I was right. Maybe that's where Mary's at. I don't know. But anyhow, Jesus intervenes. Talks about the water pots. There's uh, six water pots, each of them holding 20 to 30 gallons according to our standards. And, uh, and those were used for Jewish purification, which is what John brings up. Uh, Mark chapter 7, verse 34 will tell you a little bit about that. But if you took those uh, 20, 30 gallons of water and you started thinking about uh, a cup of water, and you started thinking, how many, how many servings this would be? One person calculated that it would be upwards of 2,400 servings of wine. 2,400, that's probably enough, I would think, for people to get through the rest of the week, whatever amount of time was left. By the way, just to remind you, uh, wine was used uh, often by them. This is not to say this is what you ought to do all the time. It was used, it was a common 
for metrics that they used at meals, often it was diluted. I'm pretty confident it's not the same way that we use alcohol today. Uh, and the only reason, why, one of the reasons why they used it all the time was because their drinking water was very impure. So, so the guy, so they dip it down, they bring a couple cups out, they take it to whoever's the, uh, the MC of the ceremonies, and they say, you know, I know we're running out, but here's, here's some, another batch. And he tastes it, and he says, this is amazing. This is way better than anything. And most people do that at the beginning. You give the good stuff at the beginning when people are full and starting to feel themselves and they don't care anymore. Then you bring in the cheap stuff and, and you can slide that through. They don't know any different at that point. But you guys brought up the very best at the end. And here's a good statement. Jesus gives something better than we have known before. They never had anything like that. The Toastmaster didn't have anything like that before. This is, this is amazing. Jesus coming into your life is better than anything you have ever known before. It's like, he saved the best for me. He saved the best for last to be a part of me. This miracle was impressive and was complete. Just because I like to do this, uh, I have a quote from Dr. Kent about the idea of the uh, miraculous signs. Here's what, how John uses that word. He's going to use it throughout this gospel. It's a token. It's a proof. It's an indicator or a sign of something. It's a sign of something. And these were signs of Christ's origin, his person, and his mission. That's what John is trying to show us in the next chapters to come and here as well. He's trying to point out to us, this Jesus is someone really different, really unique, really special. He is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is who he's claimed to be. This speaks about his origin, you know, in the virgin conception, yes, but he's always existed before that. It speaks about who his personage, that he is God, uh, God Almighty, and his mission. He came to rescue us from our sins. The people saw a miracle with their own eyes. There was probably, you know, when you think about that compared to Billy Graham crusades, you know, it's a smaller gathering than something like that. So it was a select audience, but they had to make a conclusion about who they just saw and what he just did. And they needed to conclude about his power. And it tells us that the disciples who've been with Jesus and maybe pretty pumped up about the whole thing, decided this adds to my belief. This adds and strengthens my faith in who he is. This miracle is a picture for you and I of the transforming power that is associated with Jesus. He took something that was very ordinary, pretty important, it's called water, 
And he changed it to something that was a little extraordinary and more valued and needed even more in that setting. Just like he does with you. He takes something that is pretty ordinary. I don't think any of us in here are much better than ordinary. We're all the same. We're all people. We're all the same. And he takes that and he transforms us into something that is very unique, something that is very special, something that is very precious to him. Christ has the power to change those physical elements, and he also has a greater power to change spiritual lives and to bring us into the kingdom of his love and life. In an instant, his disciples saw proof that he had divine power as a creator. He created everything and he just changed the elements to create something better. He's one that surely, as the scriptures say, is greater than Moses. Uh, he is God. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for the, the vision and the visual of who our Savior is and what he has done for us. Thank you for the miracles that he did. Those are really cool. Uh, and they're true and re reported in time with lots of eyewitnesses. And, and we're confident in all of those. But it's far more significant that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He's the chosen, anointed one who is given for us so that we could trust him, so that we could be secured and redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and that we would have the security of knowing that we have a life that is abundant, but a life that is eternal in the heavenlies with Christ. Thank you so much for your love, for your grace. Today, Lord, we, we just give you praise. Those of us who have known you, we just grow and grow more in love and more, uh, more thankful for your plan in our lives, your involvement in our lives. If there's any here who don't know you, I just pray that they would be drawn closer to you because true life comes from Christ. Lord, just help us to, to know you and, and to uh, have you work in our hearts in a way that is best to draw us nearer to you. And may Jesus be glorified in his name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. If you have questions or would like to know more about our church, please visit www.ritmangrace.org or email us at ritmangbc at aol.com.